Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Please be seated, and we are going to begin in, in Matthew 24 today. If you, want to, if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew 24, get your phones there. I'm going to move this over just a little bit because I feel like I'm going to catch on fire. Um, there, I feel a little less uh, flammable. Okay, um, so it is, uh, it, is Advent, it is Advent week two, and we are in the middle of the, uh, the Advent series that we are calling The Time Between, where we are focusing on our reality in this moment of history, where we are living in between the coming of Jesus in the first place, the first time is His incarnation and what we celebrate at Christmas, and looking forward to His return in what is oftentimes called the, the consummation, when he will, we, he will come back. And so there's those two sort of uh, points on the timeline and that we live in the time between. And so what, what does that mean for us? We are examining what, what, how should that affect our lives and our thoughts and our way of being and our way of acting. And so t- today, well, well, last week we had, to start, we, we had to start with some pretty deep things, right? We, we talked about lament, uh, and we talked about some of the deep, um, uh, the deep calling out and sorrow that we need to engage in, in order to ready our hearts for the need for our Savior, right? To recognize how much we need Jesus. That part of that is simply lamenting. So we went to some difficult places last week, and so I thought we would discuss a little bit lighter subject this week: um, the end of the world. Uh, so. Going good so far uh, this uh, this Advent. The nice thing is, is that the more candles there are, the more joyful it becomes over the course of of Advent. Until this one, that represents Christ Himself, is when we just release all of that rejoicing that uh, that we have pent up within us. So, so I do. I want to talk to us about the end of the world. Like if this is if this is the 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 point of this sermon series is to try to get us to to recognize the reality of living between Jesus coming the first time and expecting Jesus coming the second time, it's probably a good thing for us to look at what's going to happen when, when Jesus comes back. What's going to happen when he, when he returns? What's that going to be like? And, and there is a common belief among Christians that Christ entered into the world as a baby 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. We're all pretty, we're all pretty comfortable with that side of things. There's also, there's also general agreement that Christ is going to return. We say it in the Nicene Creed, which is the, one of the ancient statements of the Christian faith, that we believe that He is going to, to return, to come again, to judge the living and the dead. And so there is, there is some agreement on that. However, there is a little bit of confusion about exactly what it's going to be like when, when Christ returns. Um, and, and this is not new, okay? So in our passage today, Matthew 24, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives in verse 3. He sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Questions about 
How is the world going to end? What's it going to be like when Christ comes back? How should we think about this? These are not new questions. We're not the first ones asking these questions. The disciples themselves, when Jesus was still with, with them, was asking questions about the end of the world. And so, so, so some of our confusion, some of our mixed messages, I think, about the return of Christ come from a couple of different places. One, um, in many places when Jesus is talking about his return and the coming judgment of God as well, he's purposefully cryptic. In other words, he's not just giving every single detail to us. And we're going to talk about why in in a little bit. Um, But he says things like this. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Okay. Right? Um, I mean, if I was a disciple and he said that to me, I'd be like... Um, it's not any clearer to me. Um, after you, like, I asked the question, you, you gave that. I'm still a little off here as to knowing exactly what's going to happen. There is, some, there is some vagueness. Oftentimes, too, another place where there's confusion here is that the Scripture that does talk about the coming of Christ and the renewal of all things and, and the, the judgment of God, that, that the Scripture that discusses these things is oftentimes mis, uh, easily misread. It's easy to misread this kind of Scripture because in the Bible, there are different genres, right? Different types of literature, just like there are anywhere else. You don't read, you don't read a poem the same way that you read a cookbook, right? Like, no one looks at a cookbook and it says, break two eggs, and you're like, oh, this is, this is a commentary on the state of our fragile psyche. No, it means break some eggs and put them in a bowl. Right? There's different ways of reading different types of literature. And in the Scripture, we have a lot of what is called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature talks about the end of the world, um, and it is oftentimes filled with imagery and symbols and Old Testament references, all kinds of, of, uh, of things that we need to look at and then be able to properly interpret in light of Scripture. And sometimes those passages are hard to read, and that has led to a lot of misinformation coming our way. Also, to add to some of this confusion as well, when Jesus talks about, when Jesus himself talks about his coming again, sometimes he's talking about judgment that is coming that where we are right now has already happened. And he's talking about things that are going to happen. So when he says something like this in verse 24... Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came out to point, or came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, "You see all of these, don't you? Truly, I say to you, there will be not one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down." Okay, so that feels a little like ooh, into the world kind of stuff, right? Like the temple is going to be destroyed. Well, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Um, when the Roman Empire, they had a little dust up um, with the Jewish folks and, uh, and, uh, and the temple was thrown to the ground. So is Jesus talking about with sort of this destruction that's coming, is he talking about pending judgment that is going to happen within decades of his life? Or is he talking about thousands of years later when he returns? Yes. Right, so so this can this can be a little confusing because because there are different there are many different layers to how these things are laid out 
in the Scripture. Plus, our confusion on this is added to because there's a lot of misinformation by TV preachers and popular books and street preachers. and So we just have a lot of information coming at us about a lot of kind of confusing things. And so really what I want to do just briefly this morning, we're just going to kind of go simple this morning, um, and, and give a 30,000 foot overview of what is faithful Christian thought about the second coming of Jesus. You can kind of see this as sort of a uh, and FAQs about, about the end of the world, right? Like, just have some frequently asked questions. How is this going to shake down? And we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about what we can know and what we can't know, uh, and why perhaps God has chosen to reveal some things and not others, all right? So that's, that's the purpose for this morning as we're, as we're looking for it, a brief understanding of Christian thought about what it's going to be like when Christ returns and answer to some of the questions that we might have lingering with us. And so here's the first one. When will Jesus come back? Well, here's an easy answer for you. We do not know. In fact, the Scripture is very clear about the fact that we do not know. In verse 36, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. We could have a whole other deep conversation about how the Father knows it and the Son doesn't, and that's another conversation for another day. But the point here is, no one knows when Jesus is going to return. There's a lot of verses about this, about how the Son of Man, and that's Jesus, um, that, uh, that He's going to come like a thief in the night. Right? There's, you don't know when He is coming. You don't, we don't know that hour. So this is a really important place to start because for 2,000 years, various people over various times and in various places have claimed to know when the Lord is coming. And so if anyone is going to talk to you about these things and they start with, I know when Jesus is coming, don't listen to anything else they have to say. You are probably in a cult. Right? That's how that is. If you have a checkbox, am I in a cult? Number one, do they know when Jesus is coming? Yes. Uh oh. Right? Like that's how that should work. Um, just run down the list. We do not know when Jesus is, is coming. And that's part of the point is because what would we do differently if we did know when he was coming? Well, we would make ready. Right? We would. What do we need to do to get ready if Jesus is coming? What, what do we need to do? And that's exactly the point, that we do need to make ready because He could be here at any moment. And so what would happen if He said, I'm going to return 52 years from right now? Well, those of us who are not going to be around 52 years from right now are going to be like, whew, right? Like, then eat, drink, and be merry, right? Because we don't have to worry about this for a little bit, uh, for a little while. People who are just being born are like, well, man, I got to tuck in my vacations for different times. I mean, like, we would start to plan. I remember, I remember uh, uh, praying about a week before I got married. Lord Jesus, please come. But not for about two weeks, right? I've got, there's really important things um, that are happening over the course of this week. And so I would really just w- love it if you would wait a little bit. What would we do differently if we knew the day? Nothing. Because we're supposed to be ready now, at any moment of the coming of Jesus. So, if we don't know when He is coming, how will Jesus come back? What, what will it be like when Jesus returns? How, 
how, what's it going to look like? What's it going to sound like? Well, here's some, here's some descriptors. First of all, Jesus is going to return the same way he left. If at some point you go and read Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, it is the description of his ascension. After his death and resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of God, and it says this. He was taken up before the very eyes of the disciples, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And the disciples were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him, you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus is going to return bodily from heaven. He's going to, he's going to come back. He's going to descend from, from heaven. That, that's what's going to happen in that day. And when he does, we're not going to miss it. This isn't something that's going to just sneak up on us and you're going to hear about it on CNN, right? Like of, of oh, uh, Jesus has appeared in England. Right now, Jesus has appeared. No, there's not going to be a tracker like there is at Santa Claus on Christmas Eve of where Jesus is sort of moving around the world. We're all going to know. We're all going to know. It says things like this in the Scripture. Revelation chapter 1 says that every eye on earth will see Him. In places like 1 Corinthians 15 and Hebrews 12 and in Revelation 11, it says that there will be a loud trumpet sound. And Matthew 24 talks about lightning and coming with power and in clouds of glory, which is all Old Testament imagery of when, Jesus, or when God revealed the law to Moses on the mountain. Then, after Jesus returns, all those who have died in Christ will rise, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is what's going to happen when Christ returns. You're not going to get home from work and your wife or husband say, hey, did you hear what happened today? Like, Jesus came back. We're all going to know. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. Now, we're rational, logical people, and I, and I know that we can start to say then, well, how is it possible that every eye on earth will see him return at the same time if he's returning bodily and there's only one of him and there's a whole world? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how that's going to go down. I don't know how we're all going to see him at the same time. This has never happened before. We don't really have any precedence to be able to come to to say, in the second coming of Christ, what's it going to be like? Because he makes it clear in the Scripture that the way he came the first time was much more obscure and in a manger, and the way he's coming the second time with, with lightning and fire and trumpets and every knee will bow. What's it going to be like? I don't know. None of us know. And part of the point is that we don't have to search for answers on all of those kind of details. I mean, people make charts about this stuff, right? Probably second box of, of the, of the uh, cult checklist is, do they have a book of charts about how all of this is going to go down? Um, and if we keep checking these boxes, you should just be more and more afraid of, uh, and you're like... What do we teach here at Redeemer? Are they saying, no, we have none of these things that's, that's happening here. You can feel safe. But, but people have charts of like, like this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this and this come, and then Russia is going to come over here, and then over here, and then like, take a breath. We don't know what it's all going to look like. And when we start to make charts and when we start to make timelines and when we start to try to figure everything out and have all of these questions answered, we're missing the point 
that it's all about trusting in the return of God and the return of Jesus to be with us. We don't need to have control over every moment of that. We don't need to know every single moment of that. Do you see how in our humanity we are seeking answers and we're seeking, I want to know every single, I want to know every single detail rather than just being able to go, our Lord and Savior is coming back, then everything is going to be great. And we can just trust Him for it. So what I'm about to say, it could be a bit controversial for you depending on your background and where and how you've grown up. One of the ways that is described about how Christ, what's going to happen when Christ returns is that you'll often hear the idea of the rapture. Um, and in this view, Jesus is going to come sort of secretly once and then suck up all of the Christians, like just like remove them from, from the earth, and all of the non-Christians are going to be left here to kind of figure things out. And then Jesus is going to come again later uh, in His second coming to, uh, to, to, to renew all things. And so this, this friends, is, uh, this is not historic Christian teaching. Okay, this, this idea of the rapture was never taught in the church anywhere until the 1830s, which is actually really new in the timeline of Christian doctrine, considering we have thousands of years of it. This, that's very, very new. And the origins of it are really kind of sketchy uh, as, uh, as well. So if you think of any, any, um, any historic Christian figures that you might know their name, like uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther, St. Augustine, St. Patrick. Maybe you've heard some of these folks before. None of them would have ever heard of the rapture. Okay? Uh, it is, it's not historic Christian teaching, and it's important that we recognize that. Why? Because the rapture looks to an escape. We've already talked about how we want to have control over everything. And then the other thing that we look for is an escape. I want to be out of here. But friends... When Jesus returns here, we actually want to be here. If he's coming here, we want to be where he is. And there's a dangerous aspect of, an, of a belief in the rapture that can make this world feel disposable. Right? Like we're just here kind of waiting it out until we either die and go be with Jesus or he comes back and then, uh, and then, uh, and then we get sucked up into heaven and we're just like in this dust bowl for a little while. But a historic and faithful Christian understanding of the return of Christ is that He comes here to renew the earth. And so the things that we are doing here now that matter from an eternal standpoint have, uh, have meaning forever. So the things that we do on our farm with Stephen in creation care here, that matters. That's not all that's going to wither up in the end. That, that matters because we're participating now in what Christ is going to bring to fulfillment when He comes. When we are a part of straightening out what is crooked. When we are a part of combating those things of the world that, uh, that would corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. When we are a part of those things, they have eternal significance. We're not just going to escape. We're, we're going to be here as Christ comes to make all things new. And you go, wait, Dan, yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but there's all these passages that talk about one person being left and one people, person being taken. Yeah, I know, I've read those. And there's some here in Matthew 24. But when you read the, uh, the entirety of the text, what it says is that it was just like in the days of Moses. 
I mean, I'm sorry, the days of Noah, when the flood came, uh, and then it says one person was left, one person was taken away. When the flood came, you didn't want to be one of the people taken away. You wanted to be one of the people left behind. Like, whenever we see judgment in the Scripture, it's always the people who are taken that are under judgment, and the people who are left that are the people that are safe. And so when we read those passages about people being taken, you're like, Lord, I don't want to be left behind. Actually, yes, you do. Because He's coming here, and judgment has come to those who are not still here. And that's so important for us to recognize because it grounds us in this world as having meaning and value and purpose in the place that we are in. So we don't want to control, and we don't want to escape. We want to be here and trust when Jesus comes. So that leads us to the next question. Why then is Jesus coming back? What's he, what's he going to do? Well, the scripture tells us that he's coming back to judge the world. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We say in the Nicene Creed, which is, comes from uh, 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 4, that he is going to come and he's going to judge the world. There's, there's a lot of discussion in the scripture about sheep and goats and two different trees and two different roads and two different, there's wheat and there's weeds. There's all of this setting of two different things and that Jesus is going to come to judge. But that shouldn't be a place that scares us either in the end. It should be terrifying at the beginning when we get, wait, Jesus is going to come and lay out the standard of the law and the standard of perfection and judge us against it. That should be terrifying because none of us match up. Until we come to the point of understanding that this is why the cross and the resurrection are so important. That Jesus took upon Himself our sins and died in our place in the tomb so that we will be a part of the resurrection. And so therefore we have in Hebrews where it talks about that we can come before the throne of grace with confidence. And this leads to so much worship. Yes, God is coming to judge the heavens and the earth. He's coming to judge all things. And as Alice read for us in the Psalms today, He's going to come and judge with righteousness and equity. It's not an arbitrary judgment. It is with righteousness and equity. And those who belong to Him will be with Him. And so it should be terrifying. And then immediately when we recognize the grace that is offered to us through faith in Christ, it should be a place of utter joy. That when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, if we know Him, if we've repented, believed, been baptized, brought into Him, if we know Him, that that is going to be a joyous moment of receiving us as sons and daughters. So He's coming to judge the world and He's coming to set up His kingdom. Revelation chapter 11 says, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. So all of the chaos on the earth, all of the things that are unsettling, all of the things that are fearful, all of the things that are out of control will be brought under the loving sovereignty of God. That's what He's going to do when He comes. And we actually pray for this all the time when we pray the Lord's Prayer. And we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
We're praying for this. Come, Lord, make all things new. Come, Lord, straighten this out. Come, Lord, fix what is broken. He is the true King who will bring about order and beauty and unity and harmony. The King is coming. And He is coming to make all things new. This is, this is what should make our heart beat a little bit faster, is that when Jesus comes, He said, I am going to make a new heaven and a new earth. No more tears, no more sin, no more confusion. And this has been the plan all along. Just listen to this from Isaiah chapter 65. So Isaiah's Old Testament, it's pre-Jesus, it's, it's prophetic words from the Old Testament. He says this in Isaiah 65, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and a joy, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people, and the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Thousands of years ago, that was written. Now, listen to Revelation chapter 21, when the Apostle John is given a vision of what it's going to be like when Christ returns. Listen to what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. You see, this has been the plan of God for thousands and thousands of years. Right? This, is, this is Isaiah the prophet. This is John the apostle. Many thousands of years apart from one another saying the same things as they hear them from God. And so when Christ returns, He is going to make all things new. That, that's, what we're, that's what we're looking forward to in, in the return of Christ. The making of all things new. Just very briefly, in Revelation chapter 21, listen to those words. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. The sea, in, the, in Old Testament imagery, is, is a sign of chaos. You'll see in, in the creation of the world that the Spirit hovered over the sea, bringing peace where there was disorder and chaos. And so we see here when it, in Revelation when it says there was no sea, it's not a matter of going, oh, what about all the dolphins? That's sad. That's not what they're talking about. He's talking about in this that God is bringing order to what is deep and chaotic. And then it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of God, the, the, that is the icon of the people of God, is, is descending from heaven. And so in a city, there, is, there are places for people to dwell and to live and to work and to be that this perfect city, this perfect place 
in which God's people are with Him, and He is with them, and they are together in unity. This is what is being laid out as a vision of what is going to happen when Christ returns. How exactly does that work? Like, how does the holy city come? Where is it going to land? Um, what, you know, how, how are we all going to get there? Um, how do, I don't know. I don't know. And that's okay. Because I don't need to know. Because I trust the one who's coming has thought through these things well. He's not listening now to this sermon going, that's a really good point. How's everybody going to get there? I had this worked out for thousands of years, but now I'm not really sure. How are they going to see Jesus coming around? And how are they all going to get to the city? I have no idea. This isn't about us having to have everything figured out. This is about trusting that God is saying, look, I'm going to come and be with you. And we're going to be here together. And we're going to be here in unity. And we're going to be here with joy. And then and like a bride prepared for her husband, beautiful, ready, in love. And then, and then there's these beautiful pastoral words. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, so, so, so first of all, he, he has the ability, he's sovereign, he has the ability to do all of these things. He's in charge, and this is what God himself says, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And these beautiful, wonderful, compassionate words. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You hear that? It does, he didn't say, and their eyes won't have any more tears. He didn't just say, generally, there's not going to be any more tears. He talks about things that there will be generally no more of. But it says, He will wipe away their tears. The finger of God on the face of every one of His children, wiping away the tears. These are the image, this is the imagery that we need to think about with the end of the world. Not unmanned cars smashing into each other um, because they've been sucked away from the world. But rather, the finger of God on the face of His children. The one who has come, the one who has come in judgment, but in judgment to make sure that those things that are evil and wrong and destructive are removed completely from the environment and from our presence and from His. And so that what is left is unity and love and joy and compassion and help and wholeness and life and beauty. These are the images that we should think of with His coming again. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Do any of those words ring true for you as things you wish would go away? Death, mourning, crying, pain. There will be no more of these things for the old order of things has passed away. We don't need charts of all that. We don't, we, don't need, we don't need to map out every detail about how it's all going to work. We don't need control. And we don't need fear. And we don't need to escape. What we need is to be hopeful and full of joy that this is what is going to happen when God comes. And this is what I want you to hear well this morning is that Paul, when he talks about these things in 1 Thessalonians 4 and other places, he says this, 
Encourage one another with these things. Encourage one another with these things. We want to talk about the end of the world feels like that, that I should have a sign on me and like a box in a, in, a, in a bullhorn, right? To talk about the end of the world and that everything is going to burn and that there's fire and judgment. And He says encourage one another with these things. When we think about the end of the world, it's not the end of the world, only the beginning of the world as it should be. This is what's going to happen when Christ returns. Now, of course, that should, that, should spur in us, that should spur in us some urgency of going, yes, we do need to be ready for this. And if this is where all of history is going, this is where everything that we're working towards and that we're putting our energy into and that we're raising our children for and that we're spending our money on, all, all of this is going to be tried in the end, right? And, uh, and so there should be an urgency of going, I... I want to know this Jesus before He comes. And I want to make sure that everyone that I know knows this Jesus before He comes. And so there should be an urgency in us to make sure that others hear about the Gospel of Jesus Christ because His return is imminent. But it's not to scare people into, uh, into weeping to the place of repentance. But it's about loving them to a place of repentance. That God is saying... I'm going to come to wipe away your tears. Don't you want to be there? I'm going to come to remove all death. Don't you want to be there? Don't you want to be a part of this? And what it takes to come to be a part of this is coming to believe and trust and have faith in the one who is going to do all of this. And that's what repenting and believing is about. Yes, there should be an urgency. There should be, a, there should be in us a desire to make ready because Christ could come at any moment. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, and we'll leave with this. Since, the, since we belong to that day, so he says, you and I, if we're Christians, we belong to the day of the coming of the Lord. Let us do this in the time between. Let us be self-controlled. Put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So this is how I want to leave this with us today. When we think about the coming of Christ and the end of the world, it should be a time of excitement, of of anticipation. Because all of the things will go as all of the things should go. Finally. And so we don't need to be overly concerned with, uh, with timelines and charts and with fear and control or wanting to escape or when does the tribulation fall here and are you amillennial or postmillennial or just take a breath. Jesus is going to come back and we're going to be with Him. And our job in the meantime is to tell as many other people as we can about this so they will be gathered around that same throne, living in that same city, with that same God that we, are, that we know and love and will experience. It's the end of the world as we know it. But we feel fine. Pray with me. Come, Lord Jesus. Hasten the coming of your kingdom. 
Come, Lord Jesus. And in light of your coming and the fact that we know that you are coming and all of these things are going to happen, Lord, rearrange our priorities and our, and our expectation around, around your return. Help us, help us prioritize our life around your coming again. And Lord, give us hope. Give us hope at the chaotic nature of things now that, we, that when we are a part of trying to order things now, we are working on what you are going to accomplish when you return. Lord, give us endurance and patience to know that the, the time of death and sickness, of mourning and crying, that it is passing. That there is an end. And that that end is a joyful and glorious one for those who know you. And give us an urgency, Lord, to tell those who do not know you of your great grace and goodness and of your eminent return. Until that time, Lord, bless us. Give us a sense of joy, a sense of hope. And give us an eagerness for your return. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.